This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to ifreakshow.com slash codeschool. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 67 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Alondo Burrington. Hello from North Carolina. Pete Hodgson. Hello from Sutro Tower. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Michael Dippery. Hi. Hello from uh, San Francisco. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. I uh, am actually on. I gave a talk at ThoughtWorks a couple weeks ago about uh, functional programming in Swift. came about because I'm, I'm actually working on a book for um, Wiley Publishing uh, about Swift, uh, which came about because I had been writing a book for them on the Objective-C runtime. And unfortunately, that got canceled back in June. Uh, when Apple made a surprise announcement about a new programming language. <laughs> so we shifted focus, and um, I'm um, both learning Swift and uh, writing about it at the same time. So that's that's uh, pretty exciting. I mean, I've been doing Objective-C for about about 10 years now, mostly uh, for some, some open source projects and uh, things of that nature. Mostly Mac development, but I've done iOS for a couple years now. Very cool. You mentioned functional programming in Swift. Do you want to kind of give us an introduction or a place to start? I think maybe a good place to start is what do we mean by functional programming or what's our working definition of functional programming? Sure, yeah, I think that's probably the best place to start. I think functional programming is one of those things where I think a lot of people have a different idea on what they mean. It's good to be on the same page for it. When I talk about functional programming, talking about a paradigm on which you design or structure a program such that the function is the smallest unit of computation, similar to maybe in contrast to object-oriented programming where an object is the smallest unit of computation. And so if you're really doing functional programming, then... um, you think at the level of the function and the program is basically modeled as the composition of functions and the how the data you know flows through that function composition. So pretending to be someone who doesn't know anything about functional programming, I don't know a lot, but no more than nothing. Are there objects in this world? Like, do, do you have, where does stuff live? Well, you know, there, there are um, languages that will combine both uh, object-oriented and um, functional programming. I would say, uh, you know, generally, no. Data is represented, uh, I guess, usually as, as, well, not as objects. I guess I'm trying to find the best way of putting this. Um, you know, there'll, there'll be um, like more, trying to avoid using the word primitive types, but there'll be more, you know, primitive type like integers or numbers or things like records or, um, you know, similar to structs that you'd see in C, like smaller collections. Um, and there's not going to be methods directly you know, associated with the class, you'll, you'll have a function. And in a, a really good functional language, you know, that'll, you have things like, you know, type inferencing and, and all sorts of very rich type systems so that a function might take, essentially take, you know, a wide range of, of different types to operate on. 
Now, can't you blend them so that you have both objects and functions? You can. There's been some languages that have taken that approach. Scala is a pretty good example. Uh, OCaml is probably really the classic example of blending object-oriented and functional programming. Um, Swift, of course, blends it to a degree uh, as well. I mean, you have classes and structs and um, objects in Swift as well as um, top-level functions. I think when Swift first came out, when it was first announced and led, led to you cancelling your book, one of the things that I heard from, from a few folks was that it reminded, the language that it reminded them of the most was actually was Scala, which was a little surprising to me because I, I just didn't see the folks at Apple as being into that kind of language. But do you agree with that? Does that feel like there's a lot of Scala-type things in, in Swift? I think you can find some connections between the two. You know, the thing about both Swift and Scala is that they're heavily influenced by preceding languages, so there's definitely some common influences there. I don't know if I'd say there's, I see tons of similarities. Partly, if Swift is like Scala, I would say it's probably more of like a watered-down Scala. You know, Scala gets, you know, Scala's type system is is kind of crazy and, and even, you know, difficult to understand Yeah, a lot of times. And it just, the language itself just has tons of features in it. I think Swift is... If there is a comparison to be made between it and Scala, I would say that Swift is like a little bit more stripped down and uh, focuses on uh, some key features. Uh, of course, it still has tons of language features and more so than Objective-C. But I think the only similarities between it and Scala is that it has objects. It also has some functional elements and it's a statically typed language. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that that to me is is where the similarity comes from, is that kind of hybrid thing where I guess I would probably say Swift is more OO and, and Scala is more functional, but they're both kind of sitting in the middle and you can use either style. Well, you can try and use either, either style with both. And, and yeah, and they're both the static typing is definitely where a lot of the similarity comes from as well, because, you know, it's not like a lisp or a, something like that where where you can't do some of the impressive gymnastics that you can do with Swift and with Scala. Right, so, yeah. So would you say that sort of the functional aspects of Swift lend to solving different types of problems than we could solve previously, or is that are there just more things available to you and you can still work on a wide wide array of, of subjects? Well, I think it gives you more options. One thing I, I've noticed about Swift that's kind of cool is I, I think because of its versatility that it has objects and it has, you know, OOP, but it also has functional programming features. Uh, I think it's just it offers different ways to approach a problem that might be better for that specific problem domain or better for the programmer writing the code. I know, you know, over the years, I've gravitated much closer towards functional programming, and I tend to think about solving problems in a more FP style. Of course, Objective-C was very, you know, very strictly in an object-oriented language, and so... When you're constructing programs and thinking about how to solve problems, you had to do it in an object-oriented way. Um, I think Swift just offers an, an alternative. That said, there are some, some problems that I think lend themselves better to functional programming and some that lend themselves better to object-oriented programming. One thing that I think is interesting about what you're saying, though, is that I've done a little bit of functional programming in strictly functional languages like Clojure and uh, Scheme in particular. And when you say you solve something in a functional way, the thing that, that jumps out at me is that uh, whenever I encountered a problem in any kind of Lisp, common Lisp or scheme or anything, it's like, how am I going to solve this problem? Oh, I know. I'll take this list and I'll solve it with recursion. And then, you know, the next problem, well, let's see, what other tools? Recursion. 
And, and, you know, and that's kind of the common thing. And, you know, it, it, it kind of can grow out a little bit to where you get some kind of intelligent iterator so that you don't have to, you know, get the list so that it's, okay, operate on the first thing in the list, now operate on the rest of the list. You know, you just iterate and you just get each thing in the list, which is essentially the same thing. But, you know, it's, it's just kind of interesting. Is, is that the direction that you're talking about with functional programming in Swift? Is that kind of problem solving where you iterate over a collection or a list? Or are there other aspects of functional programming that you take advantage of when you write Swift? Well, I think that's part of it. Certainly a lot of functional programming, I think, is thinking more about thinking very much in terms of lists and operations that apply to them. And it, it turns out that that covers quite a few problems that, you know, that we solve in programming. I think Swift you know, offers some other styles for things. One example I used in my talk was about JSON parsing, which of course, you know, nowadays is what program doesn't do JSON parsing, you know, at some point, almost all of them. And that, you know, there's obviously plenty of libraries to do that. And for object oriented languages, there's some interesting things that you can do though, with um, using some of the type systems features in Swift, particularly with its enums to model a, a, you know, a JSON document. And, you know, that's interesting. You also get into, I think, some other ways to design uh, graphical programs. There's uh, reactive programming, and particularly functional reactive programming that, you know, offers a different way to model how a UI works, how UI controls interact with each other. You could do that, st- uh, the reactive programming style in Objective-C. There was a, there's a library called React Coco, I think. Reactive Cocoa. Reactive Cocoa to allow you to do that. And I, I was actually at a talk the day after Swift was announced. I was at a, a mini conference at GitHub about Reactive Cocoa. And of course, the talk ended up uh, much more about Swift and um, how Reactive Cocoa might be able to utilize some of the features of Swift. So there, there's some interesting ways in which you can you know, use Swift to just completely you know, change a, a lot of aspects of how you would design um, Mac or iOS apps. I think one of the one of the big things beyond just the you know the recursion and everything's a list type thing that you get from closure is not having shared mutable state really allows you to pare down how much of the program you have to hold in your head at one time. So if you've got these pure functions or something approaching a function where you give it some input and and you get some output out, you just have to think about that function in isolation. You don't have to also holding your head, oh, and then also it interacts with this other thing, which then does this thing over here, and then after that's happened, I have to think about the, the consequences because things aren't messing with the world, and it's just kind of a pipeline of changes flowing through a set of functions. You don't have to hold as much of the world in your head at once when you're trying to solve a problem. That's what I find really nice about that functional style is not having to... My brain is not very big, so being able to not have to hold that much of the program in my in my brain at once means that I can be more effective as a programmer. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really big aspect of it too. I mean, I mean, when you're doing object-oriented programming, it's kind of the opposite. A lot of your program, a lot of your design is towards managing state and controlling access to the internal state of an object. And especially anyone who's done Objective-C programming before properties came about knows that like that was kind of a pain to, you know, when you start, when you had to write accessors and mutators by hand, you know, just controlling, you know, all of that stuff, you know, access to the instance variables and that sort of thing was a lot of work and was also very error prone. Properties made that a little bit nicer, but it was still error prone. Part of the reason I really like functional programming is, is 
for the reason just said that you try to avoid using mutable global state and doing so it makes you know occasionally makes some things a little bit more difficult but i think it's easier to think about and reason about a program as a whole uh, i think it also lends to you know individual functions being more composable and reusable uh, i think it makes it easier to write test cases and things like that as well um, that's why i'm a big fan of it yeah but can't you get into situations or get into trouble where you are actually dealing... I mean, you're in a system that has objects in Swift, and so couldn't you get into a situation where you actually do trigger some side effects within your function? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there, there's, of course, functional programming languages like, you know, Haskell, for example, that make it much, much more difficult to do that uh, sort of thing. Swift doesn't really make a lot of guarantees that... I mean, you can still use global variables and global state and classes and all that kind of stuff. So I think Swift, it gives you the tools to, you know, if you want to be disciplined and, and you want that to, uh, a more functional style to be an option, you can certainly go in that direction. But yeah, the language itself doesn't really afford, you know, a lot of guarantees that, you know, that you're not mucking around with a global state or, you know, mutable variables or anything like that. I guess that's kind of the trade-off between the nice thing about having a hybrid language like Swift or like Scala is you can dip your toe in the water and you can kind of use a functional style where where you think it makes sense or you can kind of maybe fall back to an OO style if that's what you're more comfortable with rather than something like Haskell where, you know, you're all in like you have to, or Haskell or, or, Haskell or actually Clojure for that matter, like you have to just embrace the functional style with these hybrid things you get to pick and choose but the flip side is you lose some of that some of those guarantees so because you could be mutating stuff that's passed in for example there's no you lose that guaranteed like oh i don't have to think about anything apart from this function that's true but at the same time you the, the crossover is nice because if you just treat your objects like values and you can avoid triggering the side effects, then in a lot of cases, the functional approach really works nicely on, yeah. on lists and other values like that, where um, you can almost think of it as a mathematical formula or function that you put a value into and you get a value back out of. Yeah. So Gary Bernhard has this thing about functional core imperative shell, this idea of kind of having functions in the inside of a, of a system or a module or whatever, and then a kind of a more OO interface to the outside. And from doing Scala, that tends to be what happens with, with our code is the internals will we'll have we'll certainly have objects on the large where it's an OO program. But in the small, inside of the implementation of each of those objects, it tends to be very, very functional. And those objects are almost always immutable. So it's this weird kind of hybrid, which we didn't plan on doing, but we've discovered is, is our most comfortable way of doing Scala is to have objects, but they're kind of immutable objects that uh, return copies of themselves. And the internals of how they do that is using functional styles internally and not really using private methods or anything like that. And I suspect that, I suspect that given the similarities between Swift and Scala, uh, I think a lot of Swift programmers will move towards that style where they'll have OO kind of properties in the large, particularly when you're interfacing with obviously all of the UI kit, all of the existing libraries that are out there are OO, so you kind of need to embrace OO at some point. But the business logic inside of the application, I could certainly see it becoming a lot more functional. 
Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the style that gets adopted. And, and I think it works in a lot of cases because a lot of the, pretty much all the existing code out there is, um, you know, object-oriented and in style. I mean, the only time you don't have OO code in Mac or iOS programming is if you're, you know, interfacing directly with the C stuff, which is, you know, kind of a rare case nowadays. And, doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen that much. So I think that's probably the path that Swift will take, at least in the beginning. It's going to be a long time before you could go, like, strictly FP. I'm interested to see how things like Reactive Cocoa work with Swift, because if you go down that road, then you really could take a, a very, very functional style with your whole program. So I think Reactive Cocoa plus Swift would let you be very functional from the UI down, but then I'm not sure whether there's anything out there today that would let you do things like network traffic or persistence in like a functional style. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's anything that's there today to do that. Yeah, I don't I don't know. There's a thing called Promise Kit that's I think it's written by Max Howe, who also did Homebrew. I think that's he's been experimenting with doing that in Swift. You know, that's more of a of a promise uh, library, of course, as, as the name suggests. But I don't know how far along he's gotten with that, and uh, I don't even know how widely used that library is. But it's, it's interesting to see the direction something like that might go to. Yep. Are there particular classes of problems that don't lend themselves well in Swift to being solved with a functional approach? I think a lot of the UI stuff is very much geared towards an object-oriented style and Cocoa Touch and Cocoa right now. So, you know, things like, you know, table view sources uh, and stuff like that is set up to be still a very OOP style. Is that because of the design of the library or is that due to something else that's inherent in the language? I would say probably the design of the library, that a lot of elements of the UI code is still heavily rooted in um, not only in Objective-C, but in, you know, late 80s, early 90s, when OOP was really sort of getting a lot of momentum and there were, you know, a lot of best practices and things like that only, you know, being established. The next engineers were definitely very good at designing their libraries, but it was very geared towards Objective-C. And, of course, Apple continued that trend when they adopted those libraries and built on top of them, you know, and extended them and added different things. I I don't think it's necessarily something that's a deficiency in other paradigms. It's just, you know, there's 30 years of, you know, 25 years of work behind a lot of that code. So uh, that's that's the prevailing style right now. If you think about it, a lot of UI is is about shared mutable state, right? Like a form that you fill out on a page is shared mutable state. So I think maybe that's why it lends itself more to an OO style is you have kind of like a blob of stuff with some state in the UI and then you represent it in code with a blob of objects with shared state. I think maybe that's part of what's led everyone kind of to do things more in an OO style. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, Smalltalk's firmly rooted in that. I mean, Smalltalk really came about in, in an attempt to build a, a graphical interface to computers. And so, you know, Objective-C, of course, builds on that. And, and I think UI programming does lend itself really well to an OOP style. I mean, you can do other styles, uh, you know, functional reactive programming, as as we mentioned. But I think most people doing UI are probably more comfortable with an object-oriented style. So we've talked to, about kind of... Some of the stuff about Swift and some stuff about functional programming in general. What specifically is is there in in Swift in terms of language features that allows us to do to kind of call it a, f- a functional language or at least a, a hybrid language? What makes it functional? 
there's a lot of things that that at least allow it to move towards that style. Um, for one thing, at least in comparison to Objective C, it has um, static types and pretty decent type inferencing uh, system. You know, that is uh, uh, something that can figure out what types a uh, variable are without without their programmer having to annotate all of them like you would in C or Java or similar languages. And that's something that's, I mean, it's not necessary in a functional programming language, but a lot of them use that style. And uh, there's a lot of other things that have been added to it. They, they have option types now. So, you know, before you had to deal with, you know, no pointers and, and all that stuff, which let, obviously led to a lot of problems. Swift designers pulled in optional types from... Uh, which are heavily influenced by languages like Haskell and Scala and several other ones. Can we dive into that a little bit and go? Because I think for folks who haven't used one of these languages before, it's a fairly weird concept. I think the the, the idea of an option is a fairly weird concept. It is a little bit weird. It's definitely kind of cool, though. Basically, so I mean, the problem that it approaches is that sometimes you have a variable and you don't necessarily, it might not have a value. And so in language like C or Objective-C, Java, we can set those values to null. But of course, this causes problems. If, if you dereference a null pointer in C, then your program will crash. Java, if you call a method on a variable that's actually null, uh, you get a null pointer exception. Objective-C's really weird in that you you can call methods on nil pointers and then just nothing happens but you know this causes a lot of problems and i think you know there's been quip about one of the guys that i think that you know first implemented a null type has called it his billion dollar mistake so swift gets away from that it says that if a variable has if it can take no value then it's actually set i think to a type called none is the terminology they use. So it you you have this what's called an algebraic data type where a value can be something or nothing, but unlike a, a null pointer, um, the language actually forces you to deal with cases in which you have no value, in which you're dealing with none. Um, so you can't call a method on pointer that's actually none, for example. Well, I, it technically, in Swift, you you can force that to happen, but you have to be very explicit about it. But for the most part, you can't. So like if you, know, if you have something that might be none, then you, you have to deal with a case in which it's none, unlike Objective-C or C, where you could have a null pointer and not have to actually do any check for it. The compiler doesn't force you to, to check if something's null or not. And then the flip side of that is once you've got a non-optional type, something that you've kind of taken out of this box you don't have to worry about whether it will be null, right? Like once you've done that check and now you can pass this thing around and say with certainty, this is never going to be an empty value. This is never going to be null. I know for a fact, like at compile time, that this code doesn't have to deal with that case. So you can guard things on the outside of the program and then on the inside, you don't have to keep worrying about whether something will be null or not. Yeah, and and similarly, um, if you want something to be able to be null, you have to explicitly specify that in Swift. In Objective-C, for example, any pointer can be null or nil. In Swift, you know, you have to be explicit if, if you want something to actually be null. And by default, things can't be null. So optional types is one thing that, that Swift has. So I, I'm going to get up on my high horse for a second and, and take a micro rant that it really annoys me that they built this into the language rather than just having it as a library. Like that boxing, unboxing thing where you can say, you know, like I want this value, take this value out of this optional box so that I can work with it. 
that could have just been done as a kind of a library or as a as a function but instead they've added kind of syntax to the language these question marks and, and bangs that makes me sad because i think they could have done it if they'd have done that just with methods or functions then a it would be a smaller language which is easier to learn and b people would get used to the idea of monads and yes i said the word monad well, there you go micro rant over <laughs> No, I'm inclined to agree a little bit. I, I've gotten some flack from some other Swift people for taking that same position, but I I stand by it too I, for for the reasons that you outlined. Yeah, it's a shame because if you start to see that there isn't really a difference between a thing that might have a value or might not and a list of things, for example, then you can start using a lot of the same patterns that you use to transform things in a list is that you, you can then start using that same approach to, to transform maybe a string into maybe a person into maybe a person's uh, cash balance or something like, something like that. But anyway, I have a feeling I, I could go off on a terrible tangent if I keep talking. <laughs> so what other features in Swift as a language that, that, that make it fun, for, fun or useful from a functional point of view? Well, I think I think their addition of enums are pretty cool. You know, they're not enums like you would find in in C. They're a little bit richer uh, in what you can do, and they're similar to the idea of algebraic data types from a lot of functional languages. Which algebraic data types are a composite data type, but not you know not in the same way that like classes or something like that are, are also composite data types. It's more like you have a single like umbrella type that can actually be like several different things. For example, like a good example would be um, you might have a number type and that could actually be like an integer or a float or a complex number even. But you might have functions that can work on an integer or a float. So they, you know, take in this this composite type called a number, for example. That I'm speaking theoretically here. I don't think Swift actually necessarily does it this way. But and then the the you know like addition can be done on both floats or integers. So you wouldn't necessarily need like two distinct functions to do that. And that's kind of cool. A lot of times it'll, with algebraic data types, you can do some things like pattern matching on them, which allows you to write some pretty concise bits of code to deal with what's actually a wide range of types. The example I gave in my talk was um, dealing with JSON parsing. You know, in JSON, you have numbers, strings, booleans, arrays, dictionaries, and null values. And these are all, you know, conceptually similar. They're basically adjacent value, but you would interact with them in, you know, in slightly different ways. And, you know, I gave an example of how you could write like a, a pretty concise function to provide a string representation of these values. So I think some features like that are pretty cool. And there's just a bunch of other things in Swift. You know, you have first, you know, functions are first class values now, so you can pass them around just like any other data type, which means you can have higher order functions, which are functions that take functions as arguments and return functions. Similarly, you have closures now, um, which we sort of had an object to see with blocks, um, but they, you know, blocks were incredibly ugly to use and had a terrible syntax. So now, you know, now closures and things like that are a lot easier to use in Swift. Yeah, I think those two kind of properties, the first-class functions and closures, is going to make iOS programming using Swift way more accessible to like JavaScript programmers, for example, who, for them, that transition from JavaScript to, to something static and kind of, I don't know, clunky like Objective-C 
I think is a really painful transition. But through the right through the right lens, I think Swift can look a little bit pretty similar to JavaScript, even though they're actually quite different under the covers, right? Like one's dynamic, one's static, one's compiled, one's interpreted, all that kind of stuff. And actually, if you kind of squint and look at some Swift code, it does look a little bit more like JavaScript. Yeah, it definitely it bears more of, res- of a resemblance than Objective-C did. I, it, it's yeah. actually kind of, kind of funny Sorry, I just, to me that's that. A, that's a low bar, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And there's not a lot of things that look like Objective-C, so... Right. No, I'm, I'm actually kind of... I always sometimes think it's it's a little bit humorous to me that Objective-C caught on in such a big way. When I started doing it about 10 years ago, it was there are a couple books on it and some mailing list, and that's about all the help you got for it. And then, you know, there was a period of time I was in grad school and I was doing other things in life and didn't do a lot of Objective-C. And then when I came out, it was like, it went from being a thing where no one even knew what Objective-C was to everyone was an Objective-C programmer. And uh, it's still kind of humorous that caught on since it's so weird and so much different than a lot of other languages. You know, but Swift is a lot more like what, I think, you know, a lot of programmer, you know, modern current programmers are, are going to be familiar with. So I think one of my favorite thing, the two favorite things for me about Swift in the context of functional type things is the option to make things to declare a, a variable as, as not variable. <laughs> so the let syntax where you can say, you know, this is something that is, this number is 12 and it will always be 12. I don't have to think about that anymore. It's always going to be 12. So that immutability is built into the language. I think, again, means you have to hold less stuff in your head. So I'm really pleased they added that. And the pattern matching, the enum stuff with the with the pattern matching, I think is super, super cool. This is like one of my favorite features of languages like Erlang or like Scala is that ability to kind of really easily pull stuff out of the middle of an object. It's actually one of the reasons I really like CoffeeScript as well. It means you can do that like super succinct, really terse programming that's not hard to understand. It's just very, very clear what you're doing, but but you don't have to spend so much boilerplate code typing, you know, to pull something out of something else. Yeah, the first time I saw pattern matching in Erlang, it totally blew my mind. It's like, you can do that? Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting, actually. I never really thought about it until we were talking about it just now. But really, uh, pattern matching, in a way, is how you do... And, and the abstract data type, sorry. I always call them abstract data types. Is, is there a difference between algebraic data types and abstract data types? I never really understood whether there's a difference or whether it's just me misremembering what they're called. Uh, yeah, I think ab- abstract data type is more like if you're talking about queues or lists... Gotcha. Things that are, you know, the, I mean, like if you have a list, you're going to have a concrete implementation of a like linked list or something like that, or array list or whatever. But list would be like the more abstract way of talking about it. So yeah, I, I think in a weird way that the pattern matching and algebraic data types is how how you get polymorphism when you don't have objects, right? Because you can say when it's this type of thing, do this. When it's this type of thing, do this other thing. And you still get the ability to just pass something to a function and say, do stuff differently based on what I'm passing into you. Yep. Yeah, let, I mean, let you do some pretty, very OOP-like stuff and still within like mm-hmm. a functional programming paradigm. So I definitely encourage folks who are listening to the podcast and not, not sitting in front of a computer, or even if you are, go and look at like the slides from Michael's talk or go and find an example of how the, the JSON uh, parsing stuff works or the JSON serialization stuff works because it is a really, I think it's kind of, it's like almost like the hello world of 
of pattern matching in Swift because I've I've seen it crop up in like three or four different places now. But it is just a really elegant example of how you can kind of take advantage of that that language feature. It, it's amazing you can basically do JSON serialization in like thirty lines of code. Cool. Anything else we yeah. should talk about on this topic? I think we covered a pretty big, a wide swath of material in the, in the fifty minutes that we've been chatting. So. Awesome. You know, there's there's definitely like a lot of really cool stuff with Swift. I mean, it's probably you know something I could probably go on and on for hours, but I guess um, I'm actually putting it in several hundred pages of a book instead. So, but there's it's definitely a cool language. I was although it sort of um, it made me have to start writing a book again from scratch. Um, it was definitely a cool announcement from Apple, and I was pretty excited by it. So, when does your book come out? There's not a hard date. The original Objective-C one was going to be in January or early February, um, and now the, the date's a little fuzzy since we had to start working on it again. I'm guessing probably like late February or March of next year. Uh, it's kind of funny. I'm working on the... There's two being worked on by Wiley. One's um, like a beginner Swift guide, and that'll be out sooner. Mine's more of like the intermediate to advanced, which is makes me chuckle a little bit because I don't know if there's anyone that's an advanced Swift programmer yet since the language is two months old. What have you been talking about? I've been uh, doing it for like 10 I, years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to start getting those recruiter emails, right? Five yeah. years Swift experience. Um, That's right. Hopefully by March, there'll be some advanced people that want to pick up a book on it, though. So I think that's probably about when it'll be coming out. Nice. All right, well, let's go ahead and get to the picks. Pete, do you have some picks for us? I do. I have three picks today. My first pick is the Flux Architecture. So this is something that came out of... So Facebook recently announced this kind of UI framework called React, which is more more of a JavaScript thing. But backing that, they also talked about a more general kind of architectural principle that they've been using, apparently with great success at Facebook, uh, called Flux, or they're calling it Flux. And the reason I'm picking that today is because it talks a lot about how to model OO in a different... Uh, sorry, how to model UI programming in a different way to the kind of the classic MVC. So kind of they talk about rather than two-way data bindings, which I was kind of, uh, it feels more like a good fit with OO. They talk about unidirectional data flow, which actually lends itself quite nicely to a functional style. Uh, to and also to a kind of functional reactive style. So uh, they have a lot of really good documentation, and uh, in the show notes I'll have a link to their kind of overview of Flux. They also have some really good presentations from some of the Facebook engineers talking about the problems they were having with the kind of traditional way they were approaching UI development and the way that they kind of discovered this architectural pattern and and how it's been helping them so uh, that was really interesting i just i just read about that the other day and kind of got excited about stuff again so uh, that's my first pick Uh, my second pick is swift code golf so uh, we had uh, another little meetup at the fortworks office in san francisco the other day and a guy called tom brown came by and introduced us to this game uh, called swift golf and it's a really cool idea. It's like it's golf. It's code code golf. You know, like like you have like Vim golf or Pearl golf or whatever. So it's trying to solve a problem. Uh, in this case, get a unit test passing with the minimum amount of characters of production code. So it was really fun to do. It made me realize how bad I am at Swift. And it's also interesting because almost always this, the most succinct way to solve these problems is using a functional style. So um, I'll add a link to the show notes with the GitHub repo, and you can just clone that and follow the instructions and play along at home and see how low a score you can get or higher score, whatever. Uh, and my third pick is a beer because I haven't picked a beer in a while. Last night, I had the pleasure of drinking a freewheel English-style IPA 
on cask at my local pizza joint, and that was really good. It's a it's a kind of a pretty close to a British style of IPA, and when you get it on cask, you know, nice and warm and and flat, like uh, like the English people like to drink, it's extra enjoyable. So that's my picks. All right, Alondo, what are your picks? Okay, uh, my first pick is the uh, 11 Amp Checkpoint Friendly Compute Backpack. I got a new backpack to make it a bit easier to travel. I've got a lot of travel coming up uh, in the fall, and one of the frustrations is my current backpack. I'm always trying to pull it out, pull out the laptop when I go through the checkpoint, and now I have a new one that allows me to just fold it open and easily slide it through uh, when I'm going through the TSA checkpoint. And the second pick is, along those lines, is... The fraying of the power cord has always bothered me. So one of my colleagues introduced me to the Corky Power Curl, which is a uh, clip-on cord wrap that prevents the cord from fraying and uh, will save me a lot of money <laughs> buying replacement power cords, uh, which leads me to a final uh, pick, which is Amazon Smile. I am late to Amazon Prime, and I was introduced to it uh, very recently when I started ordering all these things. And I discovered Amazon Smile, which makes donations of a half a percentage point to the charity of your choice. So I am using Amazon more as a way to also, you know, streamline delivery to my house, but also to, you know, find a small way to donate to charity more. Those are my picks. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks. Um, I'm just going to pick a, a handful of books. Um, I know that some of our listeners are uh, freelancers. I think, honestly, that, that several of these books are books that everyone should read. And basically, they're kind of, I hate to say self-help because you always get the kind of the, the stereotypical crap. But these books really were kind of inspiring, and I, I really, really enjoyed them. I listened to them on Audible. But you can actually go pick them up on Amazon or whatever, ebooks. They're all pretty short books. The first one is called Rhinoceros Success. And basically, it talks about picking a goal and charging at it and achieving it. And, you know, kind of like a rhinoceros. So <laughs> if you try and charge at too many things, you're not going to hit any of them. But if you go out there and you succeed, and yes, the metaphor in it is kind of taken a little bit too far, but the overall principle is awesome, and I really enjoyed it. The next one is called The Go-Getter, another really short one. It's actually shorter than Rhinoceros Success. Rhinoceros Success is the longest one, and on Audible, it's an hour and a half to listen to. So The Go-Getter is it's kind of a parable or story with a purpose or moral or whatever you want to call it, and it just it basically goes through... And, uh, you know, you follow this character as he goes way out of his way to achieve something and really kind of defines what a go-getter is. And finally, the last one is QBQ, the question behind the question. And that one's about personal responsibility. And I, it, I really found it inspiring as well. So I'm going to pick those three books. Michael, what are your picks? Uh, I got a few. You know, I've, I've been doing a lot of writing for the past few months. So I, I've become a big fan of um, a couple of information architecture products, uh, Writer and Writer Pro, namely, which have pretty stripped down UI for writing that lets you get really into writing without worrying about formatting and all the other junk that comes with, you know, word processors, but still offers a you know, pretty good number of tools for managing writing and hopefully writing more efficiently. So I'm a big fan of both of those. I've been a big fan of uh, the Reader RSS client for uh, several years. I've been using it on um, the iPhone for about four. It's a great client if you're really into if you're if you still subscribe to RSS feeds or you know Adam feeds, which I do. Um, I use it with the Feedbin service since the demise of Google Reader last summer. 
And uh, it really lets me, you know, keep up with all the blogs and stuff that I've subscribed to over the years. Um, and I guess finally, since we're on a podcast show, I um, Marco Armet finally released Overcast a week or two ago, and uh, I just loved it. I got it the day it came out, and um, I think it's great for listening to podcasts. I think you did a really great job with the UI, and definitely like it more than Apple's uh, podcast app, um, and even some of the other ones out there. So I'm a big fan. I think the super classy thing that he did as well was it in the help or the settings or something. He said, if you don't like Overcast, that's fine. Here's some other ones made by indie developers that you might want to try instead. And he included links to all of his competitors, which is pretty classy. That's pretty cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming, Michael. It was really interesting to talk about. And hopefully we'll get a few more people trying out Swift and seeing what it's capable on the functional front. Yeah. I, thanks for having me on the show. I was always excited to talk about Swift. All right. If people want to get a hold of you, what, what's the best way to do that? You can email me at michael at monkey-robot.com or uh, you can try to get a hold of me on uh, Twitter. Uh, I'm at Michael Dippery. I'm somewhat active on there. I actually don't you know, use Twitter as much as a lot of developers in San Francisco, but either one of those ways is, uh, is pretty good for reaching me. Cool. Well, we'll wrap up the show. Thanks again for coming. We'll catch you all next week. Working to learn from designers at Amazon and Quora, developers at SoundCloud and Heroku, and entrepreneurs like Patrick Ambron from Brand Yourself. You can level up your design, dev, and promotion skills at Level Up Con, taking place October 8th and 9th in downtown Saratoga Springs, New York. Only two hours by train from New York City, this is the perfect place to enjoy early fall at Oktoberfest while you mingle with industry pioneers in a resort town in upstate New York. Get your ticket today at levelupcon.com. Space is extremely limited for this premium conference experience. Don't delay. Check out levelupcon.com now. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum. 